Um, we're all going through things. You know, in Luke, um, Jesus said, I'm talking to you now, all of you who have been with me as I went through my trials. And I used to think that Jesus started out and kind of went out into the wilderness and dealt with Satan in the wilderness. And then at the end of that, he had finished his trials. But he turned to the disciples who weren't with him in the wilderness and said, you who have been with me through all of my trials. All those trials were after the wilderness because that's when they were with him, after the wilderness. And I don't think of Jesus as going through trials. You know, I keep thinking of Jesus as the Son of God and forgetting he was the Son of Man and that he endured temptation just as we endure temptation. I don't know how it is in your life, but I can get tempted with something today and it shows up again in three weeks. It has the audacity to show up again in three weeks, sometimes three days, sometimes 10 minutes. Jesus was tempted in every respect the way that we are. And one of the great things we do is to encourage one another through trials. We have trials. Jesus had trials. But he said, I'm bigger than the trials. And he gives his life through us one to another. It's so encouraging just to be gathered together and look at people's faces. But I can't do that for an hour and a half. I need to give a talk. <laughs> I do want to encourage you, though, and I want to uh, uh, thank John for that word. The body here receives from the Lord. And after we have a time of worship, I just want you to feel very free if you have a word from the Lord to speak it forward. Don't go, I don't think I know enough of these people. Don't go, I'm not that sure. You have a word from the Lord, you go ahead and speak it. Because this is a ministry of each one to one another. And we just enjoy the things that the Lord have given us. But he gives. And he is giving. And I want people to feel free to speak forth. But a third time on the mystery of growing in Jesus. The mystery of growing in Jesus. And I just want to highlight a couple of things. I'm so startled in the world about how much Satan puts down the mention of Jesus and dilutes the mention of Jesus into a common area so he's considered with other philosophies, other thoughts, other approaches. When Jesus is the Most High God, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form and he has no beginning and he has no end. I know that God just has to hold back laughing at us who cannot even consider what everlasting is. We cannot get our mind to hold just everlasting. We cannot hold what has no beginning and what has no end. And yet we seem to tell God what he can do, what he cannot do, what's fair, what's not fair. And we cannot even hold eternity in our brain. But he has no beginning and he has no end. And this world is dead set on diminishing Jesus and the mention of his word. I was at a Christian gathering not too long ago of people that were supposed to be kind of with the Lord, and I won't go over who it was or where, but it was a kind of a, turned into a lot of a planning thing and people talking about vitality of the church, and I listened to that thing, and we were there a little over an hour. Now, this will stun you. And the name of Jesus was mentioned three times in an hour. That's a lot. The vita that's a lot, okay. The vitality of the church was mentioned 15 times. There is no vitality in the church apart from Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 says that every promise of God finds its fulfillment in Christ. It does not find its fulfillment anywhere else. And I want to just open up by mentioning 
that Paul lays this out in the Scripture, the New Testament lays this out in such depth to say, look, I do not want you to miss this, that all those promises are in Jesus, everything starts with him, is for him, and is completed in him. He is to be preeminent above all things, and if your life is anchored on something else, it's only how long it'll be before you teeter-totter over, because you're going to teeter-totter over. And I'm speaking to you that the Lord works in each one of our lives to find those things that are built on something else. And he points them out, and he points them out to me and says, Jim, you care more about what other people say than what I say. And he said, how, the scripture says in John 5, how can you believe when you receive glory from men and you do not seek the glory which comes from the only God? How can you believe when your life is that way? How can you believe when you care more about what other people say than what God says? And he'll come into my life and say, in this area, it's important to you that you walked into that room and they acknowledged your work. And if they didn't acknowledge your work, it put a twinge in you. And he says, what I want to be in you is that when I acknowledge you, that's what's important to you. And the acknowledgement of everything else is just way, way down and really doesn't matter. But when I acknowledge you, when I say, Jim, you're doing the right thing, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your seeking glory from me. That's what really counts. And this is all over the scripture. And I'm going to read eight verses pretty fast, but I'm going to go through eight verses just to show you in all these books of the Bible, Paul is saying, I'm going to talk to you about something that you're messed up about. Some of you are just still stuck in the law. Some of you still think, unless you have circumcision, you can't please God. Some of you are thinking, it's by my flesh that I'm going to achieve sanctification and the fullness of the stature of Christ. Some of you are thinking this other thing. And he goes through in the books of the New Testament and he's talking to all people about these things, but in every book he's saying, but I want you to know that these, I want you to know about Jesus and not to be thinking about everything else as a, a religion that can be lived, but your life is to be given over to him. So when we read in Acts 4.12, and we all know these, I think we know these verses, but I want to highlight them again. In Acts 4.12 it says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Such an important clarion call to say, don't even think there's rescue and life in anything else. There is not rescue and life and fulfillment in having money, in having praise of men, in satisfying the desires of your body. There is not life. There is not salvation in anything other than Jesus. Singularly, he's the one. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, I want to make such an emphasis on this, I want you to remember, for I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, when I was among you, I separated out all other discussions of religion, all other things about lineage, the Jewish history, the whole thing. I resolved to know one thing when I was among you, and that was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do not let yourselves get dissuaded and set aside with other things. And then in 2 Corinthians, and there are, more, there are plenty more in these books, I'm just picking kind of one per book. In 2 Corinthians 11:3, he writes back to the same church and he says, But I am fearful, lest that even as the serpent beguiled Eve, so your minds might be corrupted 
from wholehearted and pure devotion to Christ. And the serpent did beguile Eve, and the serpent tries to beguile us. And he tries to corrupt our minds from wholehearted and pure devotion. In some of the versions it says, from simple and pure devotion. That your mind might be set aside from pure devotion to Christ. He says, I'm worried that that will happen to you. And then Galatians 4.19, he says, My little children, for whom I'm again suffering birth pangs, until Jesus is completely formed within you. He said to the Galatians, I'm like suffering birth pangs because Jesus isn't being formed in you and I need for him to be completely formed in you. Not, you haven't got the 10 doctrines of the new Christian faith that's hitting the world memorized and... No, that Jesus be formed within you. For he says in Colossians, for you are complete in him. And he says, Jesus needs to be formed in you. And the enemy works hard that Jesus not be formed in us. Um, just as I look out, I'm looking at family situations that are going on where circumstances could easily take over all of our thought and really all of our vision. How are we going to handle these circumstances? Uh, looking at John, John went through this cancer in his neck and it was like Joseph, up and down and up and down and up and down. And if you tried to figure all that out, at the end of the day, you'd have to say, I don't have it figured out, but I know whom I have believed, and I have my hand in his hand. And I, I look at others that are here. I'm not going to cite you by name, but you're looking at things that are difficulties and circumstances. Jesus had difficult circumstances. He had difficult circumstances. He had trials, and he is with us in our trials. Now you say, well, why didn't God just make the world without trials? Why didn't we just not have evil? Well, if we're going to have the choice to choose God or not choose God, there has to be evil, because whenever you don't choose God, that is what evil is. And there are trials in this world. There won't always be trials. There's going to be a new creation that's perfect with no pain, no suffering, no high blood pressure, no cancer, no mysteries the doctors can't figure out, no pains that pop in every three months in my left hip. None of that. No frustration, no crying, no tears. We are headed to that, and eternally. But for a time, we are with him here, and we do have trials. And we are to encourage one another and to build one another up. And Paul is saying, I want you to know that Christ formed within you. That is what you should be focusing on. And then listen to this in Ephesians 4.15. He says, And enfolded in love, let us grow up in every way, and in all things into him who is the head, Christ the anointed one. I'm going to read that again. And enfolded in love, let us grow up in every way and in all things into him who is the head, Christ the anointed one. And Paul is saying, and this is to the Ephesians, so we jump from the Galatians to the Ephesians. He said, in your whole life, every single thing you're doing, Bob, I want you to grow up in every way into Jesus who is the anointed one in every way and so that means your work that means your relationship with your wife that means the uh, comment that you heard that was bad about you you weren't supposed to hear that means everything in your life he's saying let me I want you to be enfolded in love but then grow up in all things into Jesus then turning to Philippians and again such a great verse Philippians 3 8 Paul says, yes, furthermore, 
I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have lost everything and consider it all to me to be rubbish in order that I might win Christ. So the first thing that he says is, I regard everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus. On a scale, everything else is a one and Jesus is a hundred. That's what he's saying. Everything else is one. Well, what about my personal comfort? You know, I talked to Helen about this. We maneuvered around and got some better pillows. I'm sleeping better with this better pillow. I don't know how it is with you, but in the morning, my bed is three times more comfortable when I have to get up than it was when I went to bed. Do you have that feeling? I don't know if I've nestled it. I, I can't explain it. But when I have to get up, that bed just feels much, much, much better. Well, that's okay, and I'm glad to have that. But that doesn't hold a candle to knowing Jesus. The very fact that he would come within me and want to deal with all the crumminess within me and to make me into his likeness. Why would you want to do that? I, when I look at me, I go, Hi, that, you're taking on a tough case. And he goes, I got big tools. And he can do that. But he wants to do that because he loves us. You can't walk away without feeling that is the most tremendous news that he wants it. The Lord made it clear to me a long time ago that he did not have to make me. He did not have to make TF. He didn't have to say, well, we need a TF. That's a unique name. I need a TF on the face of the earth. I'm going to make one right here. There's no requirement of God to make a TF. He made TF because he loved TF, and all of creation would be lacking if TF was not made. And that's true of every person in this room and every person on the face of the earth. God so loved them that he made them. The Bible says in Zechariah 12, 1, he puts the spirit within a man. God puts a spirit within us. He creates our spirit. He puts it within us because he wanted us to be. Now, some days you get up and you're going, I think if God took a good look at me right now, he might reverse. Okay, but he doesn't. You know, when you, when you raise kids, um, and I think many of you have raised kids in here, at least in our family, it seemed to me that the pattern was if they were going to throw up, they would turn the way that the bucket wasn't and throw up. I don't know if, Helen, if we ever had a kid that made it to the toilet. You know, I, I just don't think it happens. You know, well, you don't, you don't look at that child and go, suddenly, you're not fun to be with. I'm checking out as being a parent. I'll come back later when you're well. You don't do that. The love that you have for that child doesn't change when they're sick. The love you have for that child doesn't change when they do something wrong. You don't like they did something wrong, but you still love them. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father give good gifts unto us? If we, being evil, can love that way, God loves with a love that's unending, that's everlasting, that pierces through imperfection and creates and loves and nurtures. And you, we have to hold on to that. So he says, listen, this is a priceless privilege to know Jesus. It is a priceless privilege. Now, I've met some people who were kind of high-ranking. They're fine, but they're just people. They're just people. I would never say it was a priceless privilege to meet anybody I have met. I've met some neat people, but it's not a priceless privilege. To meet Jesus is priceless. 
It is a priceless privilege. And to think that he comes and dwells within us is beyond what we can hold. And we need to hear it, and we need to know in the Scripture that this is there. We need to be encouraged because the Lord is sending us out as lights to encourage others. And I'm telling you, this entire world needs encouragement every day. I was talking with Larry Davis. He's going to have to be on call for doing a whole bunch of paramedic stuff. He was talking to me about the shortages. As bad as the paramedic shortage is, the shortage of people sharing Christ and encouraging the world to Jesus is a hundred times worse. Because the world is headed in the wrong direction and few are they that are pointing the direction by what they say and how they live. And it is urgent that we never be discouraged. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says, Therefore, since we do engage in this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not get discouraged. Since we do engage in this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't get discouraged. We don't allow discouragement to have a home. Why? We're engaging in this ministry by the mercy of God. Uh, it's amazing to me that God could speak through Balaam's donkey and he can use me. He can do those things. Uh, you know, when he came to Moses, Moses' first objection was, I don't have the knowledge, skills, and abilities. I can't talk. I'm not a speaker. And do you know what God's answer to that was? In the world, we would say, that's okay. We have a four-step training course that goes over three and a half months. It takes non-speakers and makes them into effectively organized and good speakers. And we will submit you into that course and give you a tutor. And at the end of that, you're going to be a speaker. That's what we would say in the world. But do you know what, Jesus, what God said? He said, it's okay, I'll be with you. That's all God said. And do you hear how I say that? That's all God said? Do you consider what that means? That he will be with him. See, to God, God knows that if I'm there, everything else is ancillary. It doesn't matter. I'm there. But Moses, Moses came back and said, I know you'll be there, but I need help. <laughs> do you see? Because Moses' vision grew of the Lord, needless to say. But when the Lord first called him, it wasn't sufficient that God would be there. It is, God, I need to hear your plan. I at least need to have the opportunity to comment, edit, and have my voice heard on how this eventually comes out. Do you know how stupid that is? And yet we do it all the time. God, I need to have a written form. It'd be nice if it's in Word, and if you, we have some sort of document review so we can agree on the contract on how these next few days are going. God does not work that way. Imagine if I worked that way with my wife. It would be a terrible relationship. You know, how do the next six days look? Well, let's have it written down. Let's talk about it. Let's vote on this. Stephen's going to have to break a tie on this. And no, I don't want it. That would be terrible. You just can't live that way. But God is saying, since I'm there, it's going to be okay. And he said, listen, I have lost everything, but I reckon it all as rubbish. And this is a really bad word, rubbish. It's really like dung. It's I reckon it all as rubbish. I reckon everything in my life as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he, so when he's saying, I don't want you to get off on all these talks and discussions and does this go this and does this doctrine do this way? He says, listen, you need to get focused on the Lord. Those doctrines will settle out. That's Philippians. And going from Philippians into Colossians, I'm a great lover of Colossians. I think it's one of the great books in the Bible. And when you read in Colossians, he says this in Colossians 2.10, a tremendous verse. He says in Colossians 2.10, and you are complete in him and he is the head of all rule and authority. You are complete in him. You're not complete in anything else. 
you're complete in Jesus. Don't forget about Jesus. Wake up talking to Jesus. Laugh with Jesus. Cry with Jesus. Hug Jesus. Greet Jesus. I want you to know you are complete in him. And then in Colossians 3.11, he says, this is such a good verse. And there is no room for either Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Now, I wanted to go through those eight or nine verses because when you read the New Testament, that is the message of the New Testament. Let me tell you, the King of Kings has come. He loves you. He's going to dwell within you, and he's going to take care of all the other ancillary things, but you need to be thinking about him. You need to be thinking about him. So, again, I use too many examples with Helen, but I know these examples. But if Helen and I were engaged, and we were engaged at one time before we were married, and I came over to Helen's house, and she ran around and said, you know, kind of, actually, one great thing about um, being when I went over to Helen's house is that her mother had never had a son. So she didn't know what the male appetite was. And I'd go over to Helen's house and Mrs. Hester would fix these incredible cheese, cheese trays. And I mean, you would have three kinds of crackers and two or three kinds of cheese. Well, in my house, you know, the kind of cheese we had was the American sliced. Probably a lot of people would say that's not even real cheese what we were eating is cheese. When I went to Helen's house, she had bars of cheese with a cheese knife and crackers, the good crackers, you know, the Ritz and the club crackers. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The good ones, the one with no calories. And so um, she would have those. And when I would come over, I would say, boy, this is something, you know. And did I eat them? Yeah, I ate a lot of it. I ate a lot of it. But if Helen ran around and was fixing up crackers here and straightening up the sofa here and saying, doing this, that, and the other, and getting everything, and never looked me in the face and said hello, I would be crushed. I would be crushed. But we do that with the Lord. We get about, quote, Christian activities and do not look Jesus in the face. I'm going to say something that's startling, but there is no Christian activity that doesn't start with looking at Jesus in the face. There is no Christian activity that doesn't continue without looking Jesus in the face. And there is certainly no Christian activity that is complete without looking Jesus in the face. But when you really love somebody, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. In all due respect, I would have loved Helen without the cheese crackers. Okay? Because when you love somebody, it's not what you're doing, it's who you're with. And when you're in love with Jesus and these trials come, you don't like the trials, and I'm not advocating for trials, but trials go to a much lower level. You turn to Jesus and say, we have a trial. Not I have a trial, we have a trial, because you are with me. And I don't like the trial. Uh, probably about a year and a half ago, I was traveling back from somewhere, and y'all know what a cold, wet day is in Atlanta, like in January when it's raining. And my car got this little thing that said the tire pressure is low. You know that little, I don't know if it's in your car, but I have a little thing that goes, look at this tire, the tire pressure is low. And I go, well, it just turned on. You know, I'll be able to get home and do all that. I don't have to really worry about it. And then a moment or two later than that, I heard this. Well, it wasn't only low, it was going down fast, and I was running on just nothing. Well, I had to turn into this street. 
And I turned into the street, and of course, I couldn't get the hill right. I wanted to stop on a level place because who knows what I was going to have to do with that tire. And I just remember calling out to the Lord and saying, now look, I don't mind having flat tires, but I don't like having flat tires in cold, wet rain. You know, it was like 45 degrees. And I said, I'm going to, I didn't have an umbrella. If you go out and do something, you can't hold an umbrella and do something. And I'm always telling the Lord about how the trials are a little bit more than I can handle at the moment. Do you ever have that conversation? But the Lord is saying, I want you to know me more in the midst of this trial. There's a tremendous lady, and I can't say her name. Some of y'all may know this. I think it's Annie Johnson Flint. I think that's her name. But she wrote the song, He Giveth More Grace. He Giveth More Grace. And she was a person who went through life and had a very nice adolescence and was popular and everything and then started to get debilitating rheumatoid arthritis. So much that her arms were crinkled and she would sit and the only way she could be, um, keep from getting sores over her whole body was to put eight pillows around her. And she could only write by taking a pencil in between fingers like her third and fourth and moving her arms to write. She was in tremendous pain, and if you read that song, I should be able to quote it, but I can't. He giveth more grace, and it talks about no matter what comes, the Lord giveth more grace. Where there's hurt, he giveth more, he, he, giveth more, he gives more release. He draws from the infinite riches in Jesus, she says. And you look at a person like that and you go, oh my goodness, but she knew that. She knew that inside. And where the Lord brings us to a place, he is showing us, if you'll let me be there, you're going to see I am bigger than any situation. I am bigger than any trial, any difficulty, and I'm going to show you there. But where do our eyes go? Our eyes go right to the situation and go, I don't like this situation. My preference is that this situation be moved. We would have been really rough in the Old Testament. If we'd been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'd be crying out to God saying, I don't think a fiery furnace is appropriate. I think my life deserves more of a something else. You know, what, what is this about me being turned into a cinder? You know, this isn't the way I saw the end of my life. And by the way, I have three kids and what's gonna happen to them? Do you see? But God is always saying, listen, you're not, we're never telling God anything new. And he's always saying, if I take you there, I'm gonna take you through. So Paul put this huge emphasis on Jesus. And when we're talking about growing in Jesus, this is the most important thing we can do. And this is a mystery. It's not something that comes from a training course. It comes from a direct relationship with the Lord. So last time we talked about the steps of growing that were in Song of Solomon. And God's given us three different things that I use, there are probably more, in the Bible that give us encouragement to say, as you're growing in Christ, what's it going to look like as we move on and move on? How does it step forward? And we talked in Song of Solomon about how it went from a very me-centered relationship, I love him because his kisses are sweet as wine, and gradually through the Song of Solomon it got to the end which says, I'm his, and that was the final thing. So, so that the, the, the woman moved from I love him because of what he gives me to I belong to him, and that's it. And we, I'm not gonna re-give that talk, but that's what we talked about in Song of Solomon. Well, in 1 John 2, there's another breakdown that talks about what happens is Christ is completely formed in us. What happens as we go? And I'm going to read these verses. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. 
I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. First time I read these verses, I said, couldn't you just do all the children first and then do the young? Because you have to read through it. It keeps going back and forth. But he breaks things up into four categories. He says that there are little children, boys, young men, and fathers. Little children, boys, young men, and fathers. And so what does he say of the little children? He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. And this is the opening of the Christian life, and we all know this. There is no coming unto God unless we accept the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus, which paid the price for our sin, a price we could not pay. Again, I love that poem. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. And Jesus paid the debt for us that we could not pay, and he didn't owe that debt, but he paid it. And we all know that tremendous feeling of getting released from the guilt of our sins, and this is something we are to pray on and on in our life, even every day according to the Lord's Prayer, to ask for forgiveness for sins. But he paid the debt, and we accepted that, and he said, because you have had your sins forgiven, you're a little child. A whole lot of Christians peek at a little child. Because the enemy comes in, like he does with everything, and tries to minimize the damage of what goes on. I'm going to digress just a second here, because I I heard a story this week, and I've just got to share it because it's so good. But it deals with this. And I've been listening to some stuff, and I made TF listen to it last night by a fellow named Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist. And he told a tremendous story, and it turns out in the late... 1980s, the early 1990s, there was still the Soviet Union. And Hugh Ross is a Christian and an astrophysicist, and he got asked by the Russian government to come over and minister to PhD scientists in Russia. And you're going, what? How, what is that? And, and he asked him, he said, well, what, what in the world? He said, and they said, you can only talk to PhD scientists. If we catch you talking to a non-PhD scientist, then we are going to export you and you'll never be able to come back to Russia again. And while he was there, they had a member of the KGB that was with him everywhere he went to make sure he didn't talk to anybody but PhD scientists. But he asked them and he said, why are you asking me to talk about science and Christianity to PhD scientists? And they said, well, these are the senior scientists in the Soviet Union and they go outside the Soviet Union and they see all these things and they're drawn and we don't want them to defect so we're just going to bring you here to appease their request to learn more about science and God and so he went over there and so uh, he said you go into these places and he said as he would say they were just academies of atheists you know sitting there but he said he would talk to the scientists and the first thing the scientists said was really interesting he said every week for two hours we're required to go into lectures which tell us that God does not exist Every week, we have to go to lectures for two hours that tell us God does not exist. So we know God exists, because why else would the government make us go into these lectures to tell us God does not exist? So we know God exists, we just don't know anything about him. Is that what you thought he would run into? Well, the story gets richer. 
And so when he would walk out there, he walked out into the place, well, about a half a dozen of these scientists began screaming blasphemous things about Jesus, horrible things like a homosexual rapist, horrible, vile things about Jesus, just screaming, screaming so loud no one else could be heard. And they would scream them right at Hugh Ross as well. And when he was up, he wasn't able to speak because these six people, or half a dozen people, were screaming. And the other scientists said, now listen to this, don't pay attention to them, they're just demon-possessed. And they absolutely believed in demons and knew these men were demon-possessed. Just don't pay any attention to them, but he couldn't speak over them because they were yelling so loud. So he said, I'll just go to Q&As, and they kept screaming, and he couldn't speak over them there. So he said, look, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and bring a friend of mine. So he got a Christian friend of his and somehow got him in there, and he sat in the back of the room, and he said, I want you just to pray that the demons will be silenced so that I can speak. And the man sat in the back of the room and prayed, and the demons were silenced for two hours, and he got up and was able to share the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Do you see what the enemy does to try to pull down the good news of Jesus and the rescue? And the guy that was translating for him was from the Russian national basketball team. And he said, after four talks, he gave his life to Christ. And he opened up, he said he would always open up the introduction by saying, you see this giant picture of linen? This has been our God for 70 years. This man is going to tell us about the true God. And that's how he was introduced. Now, isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. And one of the things that he shares is that the Russians were very concerned about getting behind the United States. And so the physicists had looked very strongly into the occult and thought if we can get into the occult, then maybe we can garner some sort of power that will overcome what the U.S. has. And that was their approach. And by diving in so far, so many of these physicists had had trouble and got demon-possessed and got heavily influenced by demons, which of course we know happens when you dive into the occult. Absolutely amazing. But see, God, wherever Satan comes in like a flood, God raises a standard. Wherever sin abounds, grace superabounds. God knows how to handle these things, and he does. Well, when we meet Jesus and we know the wickedness that's within us and we find out it's all wiped out, we tend to think this is the epitome of the Christian life. And the enemy comes in like, a, like an angel of light, and he says, Bob, you did a good job. You got your sins forgiven. Hold on till the end, Bob, and you'll get into heaven. And that should be your vision and your goal is to hold on. And how many Christians do you know whose vision is to hold on till the end? That's only the vision of a child in Christ, to have their sins forgiven. The next thing that he says is boys. And boys know the Father. The Amplified says that boys know of the Father. And this happens, I'm sure this is very, everybody in here has a witness to this. After you find out my sins are forgiven, all of a sudden you find out it's not just important that I have a gateway to heaven. I have been adopted into the family of God. Oh my goodness, God is my Father. The Holy Spirit within me allows me to cry out, Abba, Father. He's my Father. And you recognize, my goodness, I have a Father. He loves me. It's not just we have a contract that my sins are forgiven. We're clear on that, right? It's not that. 
It's I'm now in the family. This is my father. I know of the father. And so you think of a Christian as being a son and daughter. And then the things of God began to come more naturally rather than as a duty. Most people, when they think of Christian duties, they go, well, I've got to take something to this person over there, and I've got to be available for this, and I don't know how I'm going to fit all in. And, and their description is, I just don't know how I'm going to make it through the day to do all the things that I have to do, but I've got to do them. That's a duty. That's a duty. If we live our lives where every good thing we do is a duty, we are not free in Christ. We are in bondage still. When Jesus changes us from the inside, the reason that we are set free is so that things God wants us to do are the things we desire to do. And it says so in 1 John 5, he says, we know that we are of God because the things he asks us to do are not egregious unto us. They're not a burden to us, but they're the things we want to do. They're the things we want to do. If Helen came up to me and said, honey, when you come home, I want you, if you would, please, I know this is tough, but if you would please, when you come home, would you come up to me and give me a hug and kiss? That is a non-problem. I'm going to hug and kiss Helen naturally. I love to hug and kiss Helen. And it's not an ask. It's something I desire to do. That's the way it's to be in a Christian's life. But we have to be connected with him and connected to the Father so those things flow through us because those are the things that are the fruit of the Spirit. So we begin to desire the will of the Father rather than to desire the Father to bless our will. Have you got it? So we decide, Jesus, what do you want? Not, Jesus, here's my plan for my kids, here's my plan for my financial future, and I need you to bless it so nothing bad happens. But Lord, what do you want? Because he said if we would seek first what he wants, everything else would be taken care of. And everything else means everything else including finances, feelings, everything else. So that's a boy. Now that's a boy. But the next stage is the young men. And there are three things that he says about young men. He says young men are, first of all, strong. The word of God abides in them, and they have been victorious over the evil one. And this last part, they have been victorious over the evil one, he says twice. He says that in two separate verses emphasizing they've been victorious. Now, you know this. There's a place where the enemy can get you in a teeter-totter and circumstances aren't going your way and the enemy will come in and go, well, maybe this Jesus isn't exactly who you thought he was and you're teeter-tottering. But later in life, you go, no, Jesus is there. God's there, I'm there. We're going. And you grow through being a, a child and a boy and you come to the place and you say, look, there is a Satan out there. There's a battle. So what? We have a battle. So what? It's a battle. It isn't, I don't want there to be any battles. Which is a young Christian just doesn't want there to be any battles. I'd rather everything be blessing flowing and when I come I just want to receive. But there's a place Jesus had battles. He said we're going to have battles and I'm going to be with you. Okay, so there are battles. We're in the battle. I'm in it. You know, we talked a lot about, and Gideon, you know, when Gideon called out, all these men, he only got a fraction of the army of Israel coming, and he had 10,000 men that came. But when he first made the first cut on those men, he said, well, thank you all for coming. In essence, that's what he said. And he said, anybody who's afraid, well, this would be the time to turn back. 
Well, what sort of a ding-dong would come that's afraid and is going to turn back? You'd go, well, maybe 5%. He'll lose 5% on that. He lost two-thirds of the people coming out because they said they were afraid and didn't want to fight. And this is true of Christians. Once you come to the place and the Lord says, there's going to be a battle. I'm with you, but there's going to be a battle. Two-thirds of Christians go, I'm not in this for a battle. I'm in this for the good feelings, and I like people to encourage me when I'm down. And that's what I'm in this for. And they go, I think I'm going to turn around. And I actually heard somebody say something about me the other day, and I don't want to forgive them. So I think I'm going to harbor a grudge. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to heaven. But Mary Lou over here, she's a bad person. She says not nice things. And I'm going to let that be alive in me. And I'm not going to call that in front of God and ask to be purged and cleansed by the fire of the Holy Spirit? Are you kidding? Invite the fire of the Holy Spirit inside? I'll lose all sorts of control. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the things that flow towards me that are good. And two-thirds of the people turn around. And they do turn around. And it's about two-thirds of the people that turn around. But you know, in the story of Gideon, he takes them down. And right after that, he takes them down to the water. And you know, if I was Gideon, I would be praying to the Lord, Lord, we went from 10,000 down to here, you know, lost two-thirds. This is not the right direction. Now, unless you're planning many, many other people to show up from somewhere else, we need to have a powwow on this. That would have been me. Notice God didn't choose me. He chose Gideon. But that would have been me. But he took them down to the stream. And when he took them down to the stream, it was the one-third that were left over who had already said, okay, there's a battle. I'm in. We're going to fight. Great. I'll have a trial. Just so long as Jesus is with me, a trial is a very little thing. So long as Jesus is with me, a trial is a very little thing. But Jesus is priceless. And that's the thing that's important. If we're going to battle, we're going to battle. Okay? And we're going to do that. And Paul, Paul just, he comes and says this a bunch of times, but he says, so when they went down to the stream, a group of people looked at the stream, and that would be like 9,700 of the 10,000. I said, Gideon started out with 30,000. I got that wrong. Gideon started out with like 30,000. Lost down to 10,000. They went to the stream. 9,700 put their eyes on the stream. 300 drank the water, but kept their eyes on going forward. Well, it turns out that once you get to the place in the Lord where you say, if it's tough, it's tough. We're on together. There's a tremendous blessing. You can't see the blessing in advance, but there's a tremendous blessing. It is the same blessing as we had in Song of Solomon when we talked about the Lord comes at an inconvenient time to ask you to do something inconvenient. Once you step into the place <clears throat> Excuse me, once you step into the place where you say, if the Lord asks me and it's inconvenient, I'm still going to do it. Once you step into that place, there's a tremendous blessing. And we saw in Song of Solomon that part of that tremendous blessing was you had a vision of the Lord and a, you saw the Lord is much more beautiful than you ever had and you see him as glorious. And you can't see him that way until you walk with him to say, if it's inconvenient, I'm still going to do it. How many times do you say to the Lord, look, I have been praying about this 10 years. I think 10 years is long enough to pray about anything. By now, I need a result. Now, God, I think I'm just being reasonable. Do you hear that? 
Jesus yearned for the whole world the whole time he was here and throughout eternity he's been yearning for the whole world you can't say to God because I've done it 10 years I've put in my thing now I'm not advocating 10-year trials don't get me wrong but we say things to God that put conditions but if you come to the place where you say God if I'm with you if it's convenient fine if it's inconvenient I'm with you and I'm going on there's huge blessing but listen to this 97% of the people see that blessing and go, whoa, this is really something. And their eyes go to that blessing. 300 or 3% had their eyes look forward to the purposes of God. Now this blessing is a big blessing because you're telling Jesus, even if it's tough, I'm with you. A tremendous blessing comes with that. Uh, Kathy was sharing the other day that um, there's a preacher in Houston saying there are about 500 people that move from church to church depending on where there's a real blessing coming out from the message. So you can see your congregation swell and unswell by 500 people because they move to where there's a blessing. Blessing can be a tremendous thing and you'll hear people say all I want is the presence of Jesus. What they mean is I want the blessing from the presence of Jesus. Very few people say all I want is the holy fire of Jesus to come through me and cleanse me out. That's part of Jesus too. But not many people ask for that, but they say, boy, if you get the presence of God, it touches a dimension in you that's never been touched, and it's very easy for 97% of the people to go, that's what I want to go to. How can we make that happen for more people in more places, and that's the goal? But that's not the ultimate goal. And the 300 that went on and moved with God routed enemies well beyond their strength, because God was with them. And this is what is true of young men. Now notice, this isn't yet fathers. This is young men. Young men are strong. They go, okay, it didn't turn out the way I thought it was. All of life isn't the way I thought or the way I think. I thought this man I married was gonna be a pretty decent guy. It turns out he has a whole lot of faults. I just wanna clue you in for those of you who aren't married. Every man has a whole lot of faults. So does every woman, okay? And if you sit and go, well, I'm gonna be complete I, once I find the right spouse, you don't know much about marriage yet. Uh, the right spouse is gonna be a wonderful thing, but it does not make you complete. You are complete in Jesus only. You are complete in Jesus only. So he says they're strong, the word of God abides in them. We know more about the lyrics of Star Wars than we do about the book of John. It's terrible. I, I'm not saying my kids are any great example or I'm a great parent because we'd watch these things and I'd listen to my kids and they would just look at the screen and they could mouth the words. You know, they knew what was coming next. When we talk about sharing scripture and teaching scripture, it isn't something that we emphasize anything like we should. We should be experts. No one should be able to say a word in John 14 through John 17 that we don't have in our hearts. We should know the scripture. And I'm, I just very much encourage you that, that if you haven't worked on memorizing scripture, take 200 scriptures. Go after the first 25. If you can't quote them, just read them over every day. The Holy Spirit will bring them into your life. But keep reading them over every day. Don't read things that people have said about them. Read the scripture. Read the scripture because it is the word of God that is able to cut through separating apart the soul from the spirit and that is a big deal it is the singular offensive weapon in the armor of God and when Jesus was confronted by the devil 
He did not say, I'm the Son of God, every word I speak is God's word. He didn't say that. He quoted scripture every single time the devil came against him. And if you're ever dealing with the enemy and you try to out-argue him, you will lose. But when you can quote scripture, he is immediately defeated. So knowing scripture, and this is what young men says, the word of God abides in them. Now that's both the written word and the living word, who is Jesus. The word of God abides in them, and they have been victorious over the evil one. Does that mean they finished dealing with the evil one? No, but they have been victorious. They've been in the battles and beaten him back. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil comes all the time. Just resist him and flee. Once you know it's the devil, it's, that's it. Get away. We're not doing that. Okay, and he'll flee. Now these are young men. These are young men. And w these young men have overcome these things. And I, I want to kind of read it because there is a, there's something that was hard for me in life. Because dealing with pain or something like that, I'm not an advocate of pain. I don't like pain. I uh, had a rough situation I think y'all know we've been dealing with this pulmonary vaping thing at CDC and I had probably one of the thickest weeks of my life and it's in the top three thickest weeks of all of CDC and I was going through it this was ended November 8th or 9th and it was at the last equipping the Saints and then Saturday morning we were up here talking and I had in my mind all week if I can get to Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock I'm gonna have three hours where no one is asking me to do something and I went all week going, if I can just get to Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock, there will be three hours where I can relax and nobody will ask me. And I was just sitting there going, it's going to be such a great feeling. So I got through everything, and I got to 1 o'clock, and I went to Jersey Mike's and got a sub and got some potato chips and was sitting down there. And I was just breathing in going, ah, I can finally relax. And I looked down, and doggone it, there was a rock in my potato chips. A rock in my potato chips this little pearly white rock in my potato chips and I was sitting here going the whole world is falling apart Lay's potato chips can't do quality control to keep rocks out of their potato chips and I said this is just pathetic and I, it hit me you know it hit me and then well as I ate a little bit longer and my tongue felt around in my mouth I noticed that something didn't feel right well there wasn't a rock in that potato chips it was my tooth and I had broken off a third of a molar into the potato chips. Which makes you feel better about Lay's potato chips now. But, but now all of a sudden, my three hour rest time, I just ripped out a tooth and now I'm gonna have to do something about this tooth that's falling out. Well, I ended up getting a crown, it all turned out okay, but it ruined the afternoon, as you might imagine. Well, these things happen. You're going, I'm at the end of my strength, I can't take the next thing. You get a phone call, and you go, how can I be asked to do this? Well, you see, Jesus is letting you know, I give you strength beyond what you're thinking about in strength. Because the way the world goes around is, what can I do to handle it? And what Jesus is doing in us is saying, you don't really handle anything, and my power can handle all things. And I want you to experience that. And then suddenly you find that after you've gone through this difficult situation, you run into somebody who's going through a similar difficult situation, and you're able to minister the comfort that you received from God 
to them because you went through the situation and know what that comfort is. And that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 1, that we are to comfort one another with the comfort that we receive from God. And then you go, oh God, I see why that was. You gave me this ability so I could help this person. But God doesn't explain the whole future to us. He just assures that the whole future works together and works together for good. But if we had to sit down and be assured of our future, I dare say if any of you could go back a year and the Lord said, I'll let you see everything that's going to happen to you in the next 12 months, I would not want to do that. Because if I had looked at my last 12 months in advance, I would have fainted. It is the grace of God that lets us live day by day. Because we cannot handle the next, I, sometimes I can't handle the next two weeks. It's the grace of God. But it is the grace of God. It's not a maybe. It is the grace of God. Even FedEx goofs up on deliveries. God never fails to deliver. He always comes through. So when, when we're looking at these young men, in Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he doesn't say there aren't sufferings. And Paul had sufferings. He was beaten five times with 39 lashes. He was shipwrecked. He had stonings. He had all sorts of things. And he said of those sufferings, it's not in the same category of the glory that's to be revealed. This is a small thing compared to the greatness that it's working. And even though in the natural I might say, how am I going to get through it? It is still a small thing. And then in Romans 8, 35, through 39, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or disruptive children or politics that go amuck, or people who don't know what they're talking about given microphones on TV? Are you with me? What will separate us from the love of Christ? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But listen, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer, or we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, I particularly like perils. Perils are bad in my book. You know, perils, nakedness, sword, persecution. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, not through our strength, but through him. We're more than conquerors. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? Which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Where is the love of God? In Christ Jesus our Lord. And nothing can separate us from that love. And that list, list, that list is huge. Nor powers, nor demons, nor anything can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now we read that verse and go, oh yeah, we've had that verse for 30 years. Listen to the verse. The verse is saying, Jesus is so close, you cannot be separated from him by all the things Satan can throw at you and all the things the world can throw at you, including problems with relationships, 
people who lied to you, people who have totally dropped the ball in your life, bitterness from your parents, everything. Nothing can separate us from that love. And that love is so super far and above, everything else is trivial. Now the enemy will work his hardest to break that vision. And he will say, Jesus is okay. Good that he forgave your sins. Good man, had some good teaching. Let's talk about some other teaching. Hammurabi had some good teaching. Do you know Buddha had some good teaching? Let's put all these things together and compare them. Do you see how he just takes Jesus and drops him down to a common level? But every single thing in the scripture says he is to be exalted. In heaven, it is you are worthy. You are worthy. The lamb who was slain is worthy of all my honor and praise and glory. You are worthy, and that's the way that he is. So we know that we, don't, that we know war not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6:12 says that's not where our battle is. And very often I have to think about people a lot, that we're really war, not warring against people, because sometimes things that people say, they just grind you to the core. You, I mean, I hear things and I go, I think that is a blatant lie. And you're saying it with a straight face to further your own purposes and don't care. And this kind of thing of justice rises up in me, Hope, and I just want to go out there and say, it's really this way. Now you get straightened out, you know, that's, that, that's there. But the Bible says we're not warring against flesh and blood. In Ephesians 6, 12, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And to, to engage that battle, to be victorious over the enemy, you have got to be anchored in Christ. There is no other way to do it. And then, he's, and then I'm going to skip a little bit of this, but in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, it says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. Weapons of our warfare, in the King James it says, are not carnal. That's, I keep having lots of King James. I'm trying to use NASB in these talks, but weapons of the warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They're not, I can outspeak you. I can outthink you. I can outdebate you. My reasonings overcome your reasonings. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not fleshly, but mighty before God. They are divinely empowered for the overcoming of these strongholds. Remember, Jesus told that parable. He said, you can't come into a man's house unless you bind him. And that's what Jesus does. He binds the enemy, and then he routes what he has done. Jesus binds it. But we approach things like the world approaches things. And we think if we had the best debater against their debater, if we had this, that, then no, that's not the way. Jesus will use that. But it's not natural abilities that overcomes. We're in a warfare where our weapons are divinely powered, not powered by the flesh. Now the flesh is anytime you say, see what I did, that's the flesh. That's the easiest way for me to explain the flesh. My abilities, see what I did, that's the flesh. So he says in Galatians 3.3, have you begun by the spirit and now you're gonna be perfected by the flesh? That's said in a way that meant, don't be so stupid. <laughs> have you begun with the Spirit of God and now you're going to be perfected by the flesh? No! You're going to be perfected by the Spirit. And that's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, that God is faithful and he will do it. Sanctify your spirit, soul, and body that you be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the young men. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this now. We're just going to get to the fathers. But I want to say that's a big area. 
That, that is a big area. In my opinion, many people in this room are young men. We are, we are in that battle, and the enemy is constantly saying, doesn't matter how much you battle today, I'm going to be there tomorrow. You're going to have another battle. I'm going to show up every day. Doesn't matter what you do. No, there's no ultimate victory. You talk about this victory in Christ. No, I keep showing up, don't I? That's the enemy. That's what he tries to do. And since we are not so used to using divinely empowered weapons of warfare, the enemy constantly comes to us and says, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to make it any different? How are you going to overcome? I am not going to overcome. Jesus has already overcome. I am going to be in Jesus, and the victory that Jesus has already won becomes my victory. But the enemy will always take your eyes right off of Jesus to you. How will you get through this? How are you going to do this? This person comes up to you and is, is obnoxious and says bad things, and you really want them to be changed, but their mouth is like a sewage pit. Nothing can, and the enemy will just come and say, there's no hope for them. Jesus doesn't even have the words, no hope. It's not even in his vocabulary. Futility is not in Jesus' vocabulary. It says in 2 Samuel 14, 14, that God devises plans so that the banished ones will not be cut off from him. God devises plans to bring the one that is the furthest out close to him. He devises plans. I just love thinking about God devising plans for the most wicked to be able to come to him. That Hugh Ross story is a great story. You know, he just stood up there and did, well, these people heard something they had never heard. God devises plans like that. He, he, he knows what he's doing. I know we're not going to talk about this in heaven, but one huge revelation is going to be, oh, you had it all right. I didn't understand it, but now I see every single thing you did. Well, that was right. Congratulations, God. Do you see? I just want to tell you now, he has it all right. He has it all right. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows when the enemy's going to come in and say, I'm going to give you a tough time tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's always Jesus, and he's everything to do about it. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5, you've got to know God never leaves you nor forsakes you nor lets you down. He won't. He cannot do that because he's, he's loving and he can't do that. So fathers. So what does it say about fathers? Well, what it says about fathers, it says twice. And this is what it says about fathers. Fathers, know him who is from the beginning. That's a father. They know him who is from the beginning. Now, John 17, 3 says, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. Now, the enemy, always again trying to dampen the word of God, will come in and say, well, Celia, you know about the Father and the Son. You started in second grade. You, you know all this. This is nothing new to you. Don't, don't listen to that. But this is an intimate knowing. This is knowing knowing. When I first met Helen and we were introduced, we maybe talked 10 minutes or something like that. I knew something about Helen. Somebody said, well, do you know Helen Hester? Her name was Hester then. I said, do you know Helen Hester? Oh, yeah, I met Helen Hester. I've lived with Helen now 45 years. I intimately know Helen. I know Helen scaboodles more than I knew her from that first 10 minutes. And you know what I'm talking about here. There is a knowing of the Father that is an intimate knowing. And this is the mature Christian. 
Not noticed, the mature Christian does not have a series of merit badges. It doesn't say, fathers, you have shown yourself proficient in these things. You have this set of accomplishments that merits worth. No, it doesn't say any of that. Because before God, no flesh shall glory, it says in 1 Corinthians 1. And we're not going to have any merit badges. Look how many things I did. All of, we're not going to have any of that in heaven. Before him, no flesh shall glory. And no flesh is going to want to glory. I mean, it's just a whole different thing. We think about flesh glory, and we're just gonna, that's all going to be gone. Before him, no flesh shall glory. But the enemy, of course, will try to push up the flesh glory. But before him, no flesh will glory. But what fathers have is that they know, the, the mature Christian knows the Father. Now, one of the things that I love is meeting people who let everything be small except the real important things. Now, I think my mom is a lot like that, but I've met a few people, and they enter your house by saying, what can I do to help? They don't enter your house by saying, do you still have that old painted wall with that crummy-looking color on it? How, do you want those people coming back? No. But you want the person coming in saying, what can I do to help? That's what it means. They come to the place, this is a glorious thing. This is a great thing to have you around. And people who know the Father, they minor on the minor. It doesn't matter. You come in and you spill soup all over their brand new dress, and they go, it's just a dress. We're going to live. You know, yeah, well, you're going to have a stain throughout the whole time you're here. It's just a stain. You know, I, I went to school one time when I was in the seventh grade, and I had a blue and a black sock on. I didn't mean to, but I did. I found out, and Ada, I separated my feet by straggling them around the desk. So one would be in the front and one would be to the side. So if you looked over, you couldn't see two of my feet at the same time. I was just in the seventh grade, and I figured that out. I thought that was pretty good. And so, but I was so afraid in the seventh grade, somebody was going to point at me and laugh. But now, I could easily, well, I've got a good set of black socks right now, but if I wore a blue and black sock right now and you looked at it, I would just say, oh, yeah, I got another pair like it at home. <laughs> you see, I don't care about my socks. I don't care if you care about my socks. That doesn't mean anything. But God takes a whole lot of stuff and moves it down to there. Okay, so you have failed 15 times, but you're willing to try again. I'm going to focus on the fact you're going to try again, and we're not focusing on the 15 failures. Do you hear me? That's what God does. His mercy is renewed every morning. He doesn't come up to Robert and go, Robert, look, we've dealt with this sin in your life. I've forgiven you 32 times. You're asking me the 33rd time. Robert, you've got to go in the penalty box. No. His mercies are renewed every morning. He said, you forgive them 70 times 7. And that doesn't mean at 490 you stop. You keep forgiving because your Heavenly Father forgives you. The Father, when you come to this place, you will be a kind of a person where those things aren't important. It's important where you are with the Lord. How can I help you be closer to the Lord? How can I help Christ be formed in you. That's what's on your heart. Not how can you wear pink shoes with a green dress. Or I don't even know what matches. But none of that. That doesn't make any difference. 
Do you recognize that you're, you forgot to comb your hair this morning? Or worse, your breath smells like terrible. That's not, that doesn't mean anything. And what happens with someone that's mature in the Lord, the big, big deal is Jesus. The next big, big deal is Jesus. And after that, the big, big deal is Jesus. And because Jesus is the big deal, the same love that's in Jesus flows out of us to other people. And we are set free because we are in him. So listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Where does that person dwell? In the secret place of the Most High. You see, in that secret place of the Most High, everything looks different. It says in Psalm 73 that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when God is our portion, everything else changes. Our view of the wicked changes. Everything changes because God is our portion. And notice that in the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy 10.9 is good for this, it says that the Levites receive no inheritance. Why? Because they do not have a portion because the Lord is their inheritance. Well, who are the Levites? We are the Levites. We are the new royal priesthood. It says until John was the law and the prophets and then the kingdom of God is being preached. So the last Levitical priest that was ordained was Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He was ministering in the temple. That was the last one that God regarded as the Levitical priesthood. After that, it's me and you. It's me and you. And who is our portion? God is our portion. And that's what he's trying to say. But the intellectual understanding of God is our portion, and the experience of God is our portion, is what sets apart someone as a mature Christian or as a father in this, in this analogy here. So when we know the Father, the Bible says that we're mature. And I want to emphasize this because to me these things need to be layered and layered and layered where we're just solid, solid, solid. Do you know how you feel inside if somebody came up and says, well, there's been a new theory that's been developed at Candler School of Theology and it turns out the blood of Jesus isn't the propitiation for our sins but it's something else. Well, you would go, I don't care what they've come up with, it's wrong. It is the blood of Jesus. Have you got me? And one of the reasons for that is that's been layered very well on us. We know the scripture, we've experienced it, we've seen hundreds of people that have experienced that, and what God is trying to do is to see that same thing at these next levels. And he needs for us to be grounded in the scripture that I am gonna be your portion. The love of God is in Christ Jesus, and nothing can separate you from that love, no matter how bad the trial looks, nor how bad the enemy puffs up the trial to be. No matter how weak you feel facing that trial. Doesn't matter. You have not been separated from the love of God, and you need to know him and know that he's there. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He is your portion in the good times, in the bad times, God actually makes the good times good times. The only definition of a bad time is when you're apart from him. Not the circumstances. 
circumstances go flit, flit, flit. I mean, who knows? I mean, the Falcons went one and seven. Suddenly they won two games. Who knows? I mean, people's joy goes up and down with sports. We can't be circumstances, can't be what dictates our life. We have to have something much more substantial, and we do have something more substantial. But I want to lay one more verse from Jeremiah, because this is, this is important. God doesn't figure these things out shooting from the hip as we go. God laid these things out from before time, how it was going to be. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Now, he said these words in Jeremiah, quoted extensively in Hebrews, because Jesus made the point during the Last Supper to say, this is my blood of the what? The new covenant. Okay, and in Jeremiah, God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. When Jesus shows up, he goes, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant. This is why the Bible is split in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament means covenant. It's the old covenant and the new covenant. But Jesus said, I'm telling you, this is my blood of the new covenant. And God is saying, when I make this new covenant, this is what's going to come out of it. I'm going to write what I have in my desires on hearts so it doesn't have to be taught in the head and dictated where people have to adhere to certain criteria and certain expectations, but it's going to be written on their heart so it is the natural thing they want to do. They are going to be free because the law, rather than being an expectation, is going to be the desire of their heart because I'm going to write it on their heart. And But the, great, the next part is so good to me. It says, and they're all going to know me. And there'll be no need for someone to say, know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. They're all going to know the Lord. And we are. And to a limit, we all do right now. But we're going to know him much, much, much more. His plan would that we would all know me. And then I love this part, for I'll remember their iniquities no more. See, God has the ability to forget iniquities. I love that. I love that. You can call up God and say, well, remember when I prayed about this in 1968 and I was having trouble with this? No, I don't remember. He forgot it. He forgets our iniquities. He can do that. I can't do that. I mean, if somebody came up to me and stole my car and came up later and said, could I borrow your car? I'd go, last time you borrowed it, you stole it. I didn't forget it. I remembered it. God can forget iniquities. He can forgive and forget. So the scripture says here in this new covenant, the end of the new covenant is that the things God wants us to do will be the natural things we'll do and that we will know him. So all of this is written out in scripture. So now we have two places where it talks about Christian growth. Song of Solomon and 1 John 2. And the next one we're going to talk about is Matthew 13. This is when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower. 
these things aren't like you, you can mark them off with little pegs, but they are big divisions. And I want to lay on fairly thick the young men who were victorious over the enemy because we are called to be victorious over the enemy many times and a lot of Christians are churning there. And they find this a tough battle and they want to get together with other people saying, we're in a tough battle and my vision for the rest of life is I'm gonna have these tough battles and I just need to do the best I can until God takes me away. And that is not the vision. The vision of Jesus is you're in a time of tough battles and you're victorious over him. And then later when he comes back, you're quickly victorious over him because you've stepped up to know the Father. To know the Father. And he said, that's when you're mature. And Jesus would say in his ministry, I only do what I see the Father doing. And I'm sending you out the way I was sent out. And Jesus wants us to know him so well that we just do what we see him doing. Now, I'm ashamed to say I don't walk every day seeing the Lord doing things, but I want to be there, and I'm hoping to get there, and I'm moving towards that goal. And that's why Paul said that I press forward to the high calling of God, what? In Christ Jesus. That's what I'm pressing forward. And I'm pressing forward to that same thing, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, so that I can see what Jesus is doing and just do exactly. Jesus even said, it's not me doing the works, it's the Father doing the works through me. And we are to be in the place where we're like Peter and John, who said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So that Jesus moves through us, so the world sees Jesus in us, and because they see Jesus, they're drawn to him. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And that's certainly true on the cross, but it's certainly true in our lives. If Jesus is lifted up, he does the drawing of people unto him. So these are a big deal. And so when we're talking about the mystery of growing in Jesus, I hope you can see a bunch of this stuff just isn't obvious. It's certainly not shared normally, but it's the way Jesus is growing in us and we are growing in him. So next time we're gonna talk just a little bit about, uh, not a little bit, probably spend the whole time, on Matthew 13 and talk about what Jesus said about things that would encumber you as you received his word, the written word, and the living word, and the ways that people would process it. But all these things can be laid side by side. So you can walk through Song of Solomon and you go, oh yeah, I can see this, and there's no victory over the enemy in this part, and there is later, and they, they do lay side by side. But God gives us these words of encouragement so that, Bob, you don't go, oh, I'm a, I'm, I'm a young man, and all you're meant to be is a young man. No, you're meant to be a father. You're meant to be mature in the Lord. So our vision stays where the Lord would have our vision rather than our vision staying where the world would. Remember, the enemy always is dampening our vision of Christ. Always is dampening. And God is always expanding our vision of Christ. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you share with us to encourage us what you're doing in our lives and how you mean for us to grow into the fullness of your stature, something we could never do on our own, but can readily be done if we plant ourselves in you. And Lord, I ask that all the things that have held us back, our interpretations of justice in our life, fairness in what's going on with other people, bitterness about anything that's gone on between relationships, Father, all those things, please help us to release to you so that we can grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ, be pleasing to you, be a light in this world.
that you be glorified and that your name be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.